Crest family. Yeah, our God is alive. <laughs> Do you walk with that freedom and confidence in your week to week, in your day to day, that, that a victory has been won and we anticipate that reality uh, and we get to experience that reality in our week to week, in our day to day, in our relationships, in our workplace, in, in the challenges of life? There is victory. Our God is alive. It's a beautiful thing. My name's David. Uh, I love being one of the pastors around here, and, and we find ourselves uh, in a book called James, written by a guy named James, Jesus' brother, James, and, uh, and, and we are in chapter two right now, and we're taking three weeks to tackle chapter two, one to 13, but I love where this part finds itself in James' letter uh, we spent a significant amount of time just asking and seeking and saying, God, what, what are you up to? Uh, I love where James' letter starts, and it feels like it was very appropriate for COVID and some of the challenges we find ourselves in. Uh, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience trials of various kinds. God, I want to see the perspective you have on the circumstance of my life. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds, knowing that there is a testing taking place, that God is doing something in our lives. There's no bad news in the kingdom. Do we believe that? And so now James enters into chapter two, and we're doing it in three weeks because this text is so rich. Last week, you heard Ryan tackle a little bit of it, that faith works when we love. This week, uh, I'm going to try and take us back into verses eight through 11. And then next week, we have a guest preacher, one of my friends back from California, his name's Will, is gonna be joining us next week to preach verses 12 and 13 of this law of love that James is calling us to as followers of Jesus. And so, uh, when you see this picture, what comes to mind? Uh, I imagine ideas start flooding in your head. And so if you walked out into our lobby and, and these were some of the people you experienced, who, who might you naturally, just in, in, our, in, our, in our world, there might be people that you're naturally gravitating towards. That, that maybe it's that country guy, Brett Favre, uh, maybe not from his Vikings days, but during his Packer days, that might be a guy that, that you'd want to go have a conversation with. Um, there's a guy up there named Thomas Sowell, I think a brilliant economist, uh, really thoughtful guy. He, he, maybe he's the guy you're going to gravitate towards and, and have a conversation with. Uh, that girl in the top, that's my niece. Uh, her name's Emerson. She is wild. She's wild. Maybe you're like, I'm going to avoid that wild kid as, as far as I possibly can. Uh, maybe it's those bright, smiling staff members around here. You, you just see the staff and, and you want to initiate a conversation, their, their heart for Jesus, whatever it might be. Uh, maybe you're a Harry Potter fan. It's my friend Eric uh, back in California. Maybe you're a Harry Potter fan and there's an affinity. You, you just can't wait to talk about Hogwarts and Butterbeer and uh, whatever else that is associated with Harry Potter. Uh, the guy in the bottom left. Uh, we were back in Hawaii recently. And so we bumped into Pat. Pat Zucaran uh, recently wrote a book, Norman Geisler, if that means anything. Uh, so he's an apologist. Uh, and, and maybe you'd be drawn to want to have a conversation with, with Pat. Or maybe you see uh, those people with gray hair and you're like, hey, I have gray hair too. I, I should probably go talk to them. Maybe you want to sing Happy with John, Len I, John Legend. I, I don't know what it is. But we all have this natural inclination that we're, we're just drawn to people. 
And James is aware of this reality. This is natural in life. And so he's addressing it to other followers of Jesus on this journey to prevent us from creeping into something he's labeled partiality. That he's going to hit us again this week that he's going to develop the truth that those who love God authentically consistently exhibit his love in our interactions with others. No matter who we interact with, there is still this underlying driving force that says we authentically and consistently demonstrate God's love to those we interact with. And so there's three ideas we're going to try and walk through in today's text that there is no partiality in God's family. This is just how God's family works. No matter who we come in contact with, there, there is no air of superiority or judgment. Instead, there is this love that gets exhibited. This is just how God's family works. And our failure to consistently demonstrate that reveals something about us, reveals something about our hearts and our life. And so then, I'll give a brief preview in anticipation of Will joining us next week that, that our words and deeds must testify to our being set free in Jesus. So pray with me as we, as we jump into James chapter 2 again for, for uh, this law of love part 2. Ah. God, we do this week in, week out. We ask for... Uh, you to reveal your presence. We know you're present in our lives. We ask with, uh, with desperate dependence for you to reveal yourself as, and, and reveal any inconsistencies or areas of growth in our life. We, we desperately want to follow you, and yet there's challenges that we are faced with week in and week out, ones that might be very present in our heart and mind right now, uh, eliminate any distractions or anxieties we might have even been carrying so that we can hear from you most purely, convict our hearts to help us trust and treasure you a little bit more fully today. Always for your glory and the joy in the journey. Amen. Amen. So here we go. James chapter 2, and I'm going to uh, read 1 to 13. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes uh, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you... If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law of transgressors, by the law as transgressors. For who keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has he become accountable for all of it? For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. 
mercy triumphs over judgment. And so James is telling us that this is a natural expression of our life that we don't show partiality. We heard that from Ryan. And so I want to return just to review that idea. This is just how God's family works. We don't show partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so what is partiality? I was talking to a friend this week, and, and here's just a working definition of what this would look like, that we don't exhibit partiality as exhibiting attitudes and behaviors that are the result of our granting more value or worth to some people than others. That, that it's this extension of taking the place that is reserved for only one person, namely God. That we don't take the role of God and, and begin attributing value or worth to someone based upon some assessment of their life. And, and so you heard Ryan say last week when he was working through the text, for if a man wears a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. And, and so we wrestled with, is assembly connected exclusively to this place? Or does it also have implications for the assembly in a broad general sense as well? And so Ryan told us the illustration that's in the text. And I love James, right? Because sometimes the illustrations you have to develop, James does it for us. The illustrations are in the text. And he gives us a situation. And then he says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with what? Evil thoughts. That there is a judgment being pronounced because we're gonna get there later. So what, what is judgment? But he's saying, don't judge people with this evil intent, these evil thoughts as if you're worth more. You're more valuable. And so he just says, this is what it's like in God's family. We don't show partiality. We don't judge arrogantly, condescendingly from a position of presumed superiority or self-righteousness, making assessments or appraisals of people or situations. Why? Because in God's softball team, did you do anything to get your, get your, get your butt on God's softball team? Did you, did you somehow bat like 400 and God's like, man, I need that guy on my team. Right? Was there somehow some elevated skill that you had? Could you just bat better? And so God assessed and he looked and he said, oh man, I need that guy on my team. What was it? What'd you do? Nothing. Nothing you did earned some ability to be picked for God's proverbial softball team. Nothing you did. And so in the text, he's talking about socioeconomic status, right? Rich and poor. And how just in our world, we make assessments, we make judgments all the time. Everywhere you go, people make judgments, right? I was just reading an article just recently, top 75 NBA players of all time. And Giannis was number 24. Giannis has only played in the league a few years and he's already number 24. But we just do this everywhere we go. In the eyes of the world, we just make judgments. And we start ranking people. We went to Hawaii recently, what'd we do? You wait in line, and who gets to board the plane first? Well, those A-listers. And then who gets to board the plane? Oh, man, before you all, you suckers, the people with kids get to board first, right? After we get to jump in line. So we're like, man, how, how long can we milk that for? But we just do it everywhere you go, right? We make these judgments. In the text, it's about money, 
But race, physical attributes, marital status, academic accomplishments, skill set, fame, profession, history in the church, how, how mature you might be, your sexual, we just make these assess, these judgments and, and begin to categorize people. And, and so James understands this might be where we're coming from and so he keeps hitting us and he says, listen brothers, in the kingdom, the way God's family works, we understand what God's done for us. I mean, that guy that's batting 201 on the softball team, do you want him on your squad? And yet God says it's not about what you've done or what you can earn. Instead, there is just grace. And so out of that depth of grace he's shown to us, it inevitably flows out of our life. This is how God's family works. And so I'd love to invite Ben Stone up. Ben, would you come on up here? You're patiently waiting there. Fantastic, and we won't be offended when you take off after this because you were here for first service. But this is Ben Stone, and, and why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are and, and how you're connected around here, and then just what this idea of, of, uh, of God's grace being extended to us, being manifest in our life, has been doing in your heart recently. That's a lot of big words. Uh, <laughs> but the fact that I'm up here, guys, really proves that uh, they're letting anybody up on stage these days. So <laughs> appreciate this, but yeah, like, Pastor David said, my name is Ben Stone. Uh, uh, guess a little bit about me. I'm from northern Wisconsin. Grew up in a small little town called Cumberland. Uh, wrestling brought me to Madison, Wisconsin to get an education. And since then, I graduated in 2020. And I've been a member of Hillcrest for about a year and a half. Uh, I've been working for an organization called Athletes in Action. So a wonderful parachurch organization where I get to walk alongside athletes as they kind of struggle through life and figure out what it means to worship in the context of sport. So. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit about me, but as far as uh, David's question, stepping into my life, David's had the privilege of watching me struggle for the past half a year about kind of this, this, the idea of God's sovereignty. And so he thought it'd be funny to have me come up and struggle in front of all of you too. Um, but as I've been going through scripture, um, just reading through the New Testament, there have just been these verses that have just been reiterated about God choosing me, God's power, God. God making this decision to, to choose us. And so I just want to, to read a couple of those so you guys know I'm not making it up, I guess. Um, but uh, John 37, however, those the Father has given me will come to me and I will never reject them. A little later in John 6, verse 44, it says, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. And in the last day, I'll raise them up. In Romans 8, for God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that the son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called to him. Similarly, similarly in James today, uh, 2 verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom? So for me, I have no problem saying, yeah, God's in control, God's powerful. But when it came to the point for me accepting that, I always thought that, oh, I chose God. And if you can't tell, I have a pride issue. But I thought, man, it was me. I chose you, God. But it, throughout scripture, it's, God's like, no, I, I was the one who softened your heart so you could even have the ability to choose me. So for me, it was just really, it's that I got, I've been just increasingly humbled by just the grace that would take for God to choose me, not because I have a high batting average, not because any of us are stellar outfielders, just because the fact that he chose me. 
And that has really changed my life in, 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 one, in two ways. I think first, most just the way I interact with others. Going along with, uh, walking alongside student athletes, David's kind of just reiterating on this idea of what it means to not judge. That for me, I'm not, I'm not in the business of changing people's hearts. That's God's, that's his thing. He's the only one that can change hearts. I'm just here to discern, see where they're at, and love them. To choose to love them because I've been chose, because God chose to love me when I didn't deserve it. So the least I can do is extend that gift to other people. Secondly, for me, just understanding God's sovereignty and, and, and power is that um, it just takes the weight of ministry off my shoulders. Like I said, kind of to the first point, like it's truly just a joy. Like God chooses to have us be partners with him in what he's doing. It's not something that I, I you know, I, I have to do this. I get to do this. I don't have to be some molded, finished, perfect product. I don't have to appear to be super cool. It's like, man, I'm, I'm just seeing what the Lord's doing in your life, and I'm here to teach you what God's teaching me. So for some reason, David thought that whatever God's teaching me helps him for some reason. And I hope that it helps you guys too, but that's, that's some of what I've been learning. And, and even in that, is that fully formed and fully experienced, even what you just described, there's is still growing mm-hmm. in what that means in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. still growing. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, Thanks, thank man. Uh, that this, this is how God's family works. That, that, that he shows his mercy and grace to us apart from anything we did. Uh, he's not looking at our batting average. He's not looking at our speed, our 4.3, 40-yard dash speed. He's, he's, he's choosing us apart from anything we have done and choosing us at high cost at the death of his son. This is how God's family works. That grace gets then expressed in our day-to-day. And our failure to consistently obey God in this area reveals we don't trust him more broadly. Here's what James says in chapter 2, verse 5. And I love how he says this. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. Which he promised to those who love him. But you, you've dishonored the poor man. Are not those who are rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? I I love him saying, listen, he he just gets that we need a wake-up call to go, that's not me. This isn't something I wrestle with. I I have it all figured out, right? I don't do this. And yet James says, listen, brothers, this... This is a big, big deal. And I love the two ideas that get contrasted here in verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture. Why does he say royal law? Why does he choose royal? I think he's saying belonging to God. This is is the law of the kingdom. This is what a kingdom life looks like. You heard me say, we just understand in our world today, in the kingdom of the world, how do we do it? We assess people. We put them on a top 75 list. We determine who gets to go to the front of the line. We look at your batting average and we say, ah, you're probably not a good fit. And yet, the royal law, the law of the kingdom says we don't judge in determining someone's worth or value as if we're God, and then he connects it here. 
He says, if you really fulfill this kingdom law, if you really are part of this kingdom, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. He's trying to set up that this royal law is a really big deal. And at the heart of the royal law is ignoring God's standard of measure. If we don't get just how big this kingdom life is, when we start evaluating, we're missing a very core part of what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And at the core of that, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. At the core of this royal law is this call to love your neighbor as yourself. And so my ears perk up. If that's, if that's near to God's heart, I want to know, what's that mean? And so the first part of that is to love your neighbor as yourself. What, what, is, what is that? What is love? And depending on the generation you're from, there was a song that probably just jumped in your mind, didn't it? So the song that comes to my mind is, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt. But if you're from another generation, what's another song that might have popped into your mind? I want to know what love is. I want you to show me, right? So depending on what generation, those might be one of the songs. But if this is near to God's heart, the royal law, this is what kingdom life looks like. We understand how the world operates. We understand the paradigms and the the list. You just want to be close to someone who might have money, power, right? And so maybe you might rub off on some of their accolades instead. This royal law, what it means to live in the kingdom, to love your neighbor as yourself. What is love? I think it's three primary ideas. And it costs you something. So so what is love? There's actually a cost associated with it. And a lot of people will stop there with love. If they paid the cost, that's enough. And they would say it was an act of love. And yet we've talked a little bit. The reason there's a rose in the slides, bless you, a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I talked about giving flowers to my wife. And as a spouse, you may have paid that cost of giving flowers to your significant other at some point in your life. But this second part of love is critical in, in, in what love is. It's actually paying a cost, and the cost is paid happily by me. That when I give Casey flowers, if it wasn't paid happily and she got a window into my heart and I said, oh, Case, I have zero interest in giving you these flowers, but because it's your stinking birthday and it rolls around every year, I'm gonna go to Costco and I'm gonna pay the $20 and I wasted my time going to Costco and I had to wait in one of those long lines and I had one item and I'm thinking, where's the speed lane? And then does that have any, was that cost paid happily by me? She got the cost, the flowers, but embedded in what love is, is a cost paid happily. I I think we do this in our lives. I mean, there's things in life that we don't do happily, right? I think of doing the dishes. Oh man, my fingers get all pruney. Sometimes the knives are stuck upside down. You're supposed to put the handle in and you're grabbing the knife and cut your hand. And it's like overloaded and we could have done this in two loads, but we're trying to jam as much things into that thing as possible. And there's no joy in doing the dishes, but why do we do it? The cost is paid happily because it's not in primarily the act itself, but in something greater, namely loving my wife. 
mean, changing Eden's diaper, we've talked about this. Man, it's a little happier when they're kind of in clumps, right? But if it's just a messy, just, ugh, ugh, is there any happiness in that at all? But the cost is paid happily. Why? Because it's not primarily about changing the diaper, but in providing care for my sweet girl. Moving. You ever help someone move? Oh, it's the worst. Man, there is no happiness in lifting heavy things. I mean, that just sounds like a terrible idea. I don't know why Brian and people that work out do it. I mean, it just sounds like a terrible idea to me. But in moving, you gotta lift heavy things. There's no happiness in the cost itself, right? And well, some of you might be delirious and you think there's happiness in that, but in the cost itself, I strategically sometimes find the light boxes to try and alleviate some of that pain I feel. Welcome a window into my head. Cost paid by me happily, though, is what? not primarily in the moving of boxes. The happiness is found in paying the cost of loving a friend. But even then, I don't think that's the fullest definition of love in the kingdom. At the core of the royal law of life in the kingdom is love your neighbor as yourself. Christian love moves into one more category, that there's a cost to the benefit of someone else and it's paid happily, but there's actually something going on behind the scenes, even behind the motive of happily paying the cost. There's the hope that the recipient will see God's love as the source of our love. That the acts we do, not preaching at them, not, not saying, hey, do you know I'm doing this? Ultimately, let me give you like the four spiritual laws. But there's hope that through this act, paid happily, you're gonna see God's grace that's been poured out of my life that I want to happily love my neighbor. So, if you really fulfill the royal law, part of the kingdom, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the inevitable then question is, so who's my neighbor? If I get what love is and I wanna demonstrate this love of what's been done in my life, to whom am I supposed to do this? And I think we all have these general layers in our life right? At the, at the most intimate level, there's family. Don't hear me say sometimes in those most intimate layers of relationship provide the deepest amount of pain and challenges, but family. And then there's another layer where we have friends in our life that we spend time with, that it might be more easily for me to demonstrate acts of love that cost me something. And then church family. Now, I love that we at Hillcrest one of our values, anonymity is not a value around here. We wanna be known, we are a family. So better or worse, <laughs> join the mess of process and, and, and jump in. Work colleagues, there's relationships we have in our Monday to Saturday that's a big deal. And, and then neighbors, if you'll allow, I thought I changed it, but just people that we're on the same uh, general living space in the same streets. Acquaintances, people we interact with, maybe friends of friends uh, that we see at larger gatherings from time to time that we might demonstrate uh, acts of love towards joyfully motivated. And, and then, and then, and the general public uh, holding doors, demonstrating this love. But here's where Jesus, Jesus just continues to help press some of these preconceived ideas of what we have about life in the kingdom. He says this about this royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, and it's connected to the assembly, right? Who, are my, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, 
It's actually even people that, that stand opposed to some of your ideology about who King Jesus is. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, they, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to, to love my neighbor? That there is this act of no partiality that I live with. In, in our interactions every single day, there is this no judgment of act of superiority diminishing someone's worth or value. There is an act of loving our neighbors because of how great we have been loved in all of those spheres, shattering this paradigm of, of well, if I, if I know what the line is, if I know what the box is, I can do that. Jesus broadens it and says, man, everyone you come in contact with, it's no longer just about putting people in categories. Am I a neighbor that demonstrates love because of what I've experienced? And so if you really fulfill the law, royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because God chose you because you're batting average, right? I mean, that's why he picked you for his team. He just understood how good you were. He just understood what you brought to the table. I mean, we try to be humble around here, but it's just, let's make no mistake, I just understand. Oh man, I got a 2.5 batting average, and that guy, oh, he's got a one point something, right? I just know I'm a little bit better than him. What do we do? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, actually becomes guilty of it all. We don't show partiality. We don't start ranking and categorizing people based on some of those areas of growth. Judge not, Jesus says, that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. When we begin this journey of life in the kingdom, each step is what? just another ongoing journey. And then when I get to a certain point, what do I tend to do? We just do this. What do I tend to do? I look it back at someone behind me and I go, man, they just have so much to grow. <laughs> Can't they figure it out? And then what do I do to someone who might be further on in the journey than me? My insecurities start to bubble up and I go, ah, oh, man, I'm just not as good as them. Instead, what if? And then even those that have yet to treasure Jesus, what do we say about them? Man, they, don't, they got nothing figured out. What are they doing with their lives? Stinking love babies. Instead, what is James calling us to? He's just saying every step of this ongoing spiritual transformation is a step of grace of just desperate, dependent grace. Every step is a greater understanding of God's grace to us and a greater understanding of just how far I've yet to go. This is how God's families works. And our failure to consistently obey in this area actually reveals a broader issue in our life of trusting him. And so our words and deeds must testify to our being set free in Jesus so Will is going to develop this a little bit more next week, but I at least wanted to enter into it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the royal law. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so what's the encouragement? So speak and so act as those who actually understand we're being measured against God's standard. And so the challenge then is, once we get to this point 
where I'm not, as best as I can tell, I'm not arrogantly, condescendingly from a position of presumed authority and self-righteousness making assessments and appraisals of people's and situations. As best as I can tell, it's not coming from this place of evil judgment. What might it look like to still assess fruit all around me? It instead comes from a place that humbly, not arrogantly, respectfully, not condescendingly, as one who stands only by God's grace, not from a position of presumed authority, superiority, or self-righteousness, begins to make assessments or appraisals of the situations around me. That, That when you hear someone say, don't judge me, what's that usually mean? Where's that usually coming from? From anyone you interact with? David, don't judge me. What's that mean? It's usually, you don't affirm my behavior or my choice. David, don't judge me. I think usually attributed to behavior, behavior modification. Rather than what I hope James is calling us to in no partiality, rather than being behavior focused, we begin to have our lens and our language reflect that we're pointing people to their need for Jesus, which is true for us as well. That it no longer becomes partiality as judging as if worth or value is based on behavior, but rather a great depth of need for God's grace in our life. What are you batting again, 250? You're terrible. No, I think we need a better coach. King Jesus, right? Pointing people to their need for Jesus. And I hope that's true for what we're trying to do around here. How do you develop this culturally discerning grid to determine where we can grow? I hope what we do around here, we dig into the text where there's this exegetical pursuit of digging in and reading the Bible for ourselves that begins to develop a grid and a theology for life that helps this cultural discernment to move forward. And I don't know if you feel this, sometimes I just get overwhelmed by, by my ability, inability to, to affect any change. And I just get overwhelmed by what I see happening, broadly speaking, around our culture uh, and feels like we're, we're uh, moving at an incredibly accelerated pace away from life with Jesus, just increased brokenness. And so I was reading uh, just a few of the news feeds that came across my plate recently. Here's three uh, that, that caused me just, just how do we move forward in this world on, on the far left? Mississippi lawmakers walked out of a Senate in protest of a critical race theory ban that the bill that was presented that many lawmakers walked out on bans public educational institutes from teaching that any sex, race, ethnicity, religion, or national origin is inherently superior or inferior. That led to a significant amount of lawmakers from even just walking out of the building. There's about 40%. I don't know if you know this. There's a, there's a, a, a national conversation going on around uh, uh, an issue called Roe versus Wade that's currently being played out in the highest court in our land, in the Supreme Court. Here's what one of the judges said when hearing the remarks. There's about 40% of dead people who, if you touch their feet, the foot would recoil. There are spontaneous acts by dead brain people. So I don't think that a response to by a fetus necessarily proves that there's a sensation of pain or that there's consciousness. The correlation between uh, a fetus being prodded and responding with that sensation is being equated to a 
lifeless, dead body <laughs> responding to, to some type of sensation. Third, and you've heard me reference, I think, this before, just, again, reminded of this. Jeopardy! champion Amy Schneider made history again on Friday, becoming the highest-earning female. She's a transgendered uh, woman. Female contestant in the game shows nearly 57-year run. The highest-earning woman. <laughs> Where's your mind go? When you think of being culturally discerning and yet not judging as if you're determining someone's worth or value? Knowing we all need this Savior Jesus to ransom our lives. And so we're on this journey of an increased sense of God's grace in our lives. And so what's another step look like? Not an act of superiority or judgment as if determining someone's worth or value, but just taking another step of what God's grace has done in our lives. There was a guy named Chris Pratt. I don't know if that name means anything. About a year and a half ago was blasted for holding a, a biblical worldview on human sexuality and, and broadly speaking was, was being pretty, uh, pretty, um, dehumanized, I don't know what the right word would be. And yet those who knew him best, who did not share his perspective, had this to say. Chris Ruffalo said this about Chris Pratt. You all, Chris Pratt is a, as solid as a man there is. I know him personally. And instead of casting aspirations, uh, aspersions, look at how he lives his life. He is just not overtly political as a rule. On a side note, and maybe we'll talk about another time, just this blurring of ethical lines and politics these aren't political ideas for me. These are ethical issues. These are biblical ideas, right? But here's what Chris, Mark Ruffalo says. He's not just overtly political as a rule. This is a distraction. Let us keep our eyes on the prize, friends. We are so close. And the man to his left there, uh, Robert Downey Jr. said this around the similar time, about a year and a half ago. What a world. The sinless are casting stones at my brother, Chris Pratt, a real Christian who lives by principle, has never demonstrated anything but positivity and gratitude, and he uh, just married into a family that makes space for civil discourse and just plain fact insists on service as the highest value. If you take issue with Chris, I've got a novel idea for you. Delete your social media accounts, sit down with your own defects of character, work on them, then celebrate your humanness and, uh, and, and just celebrates his friendship with Chris. So I wonder for us, might we increasingly be a people helping people find life with Jesus one life at a time? Might we be the kind of people that have found something satisfying in our life, namely life with Christ? That answers every issue that we might be facing in this life. Identity, security, no longer casting this judgment and yet inviting people into life with Christ. So when, when might I have those conversations? I want to I suggest three criteria for you how you might maybe initiate some of these conversations one life at a time. Believing just that we said in that song, God is alive and there's a freedom and confidence that we know the end story. When might I confront? We ask the question, how significant is the issue? Might I judge my wife for squeezing toothpaste out of the middle of the toothpaste thing? You get, you guys, how do you guys dispense toothpaste? You guys, you guys dispense toothpaste like this, like you squeeze it out, or, or is, there a, is there a better way? Do I, in my head, think, 
man, there is worth and value determined how you squeeze toothpaste. What are you doing? Or is there opportunity for growth? How significant is the issue? How significant is the issue that, that you're wrestling through with others in your life? Not from a place of judgment as if their worth is determined by that behavior, but rather as a place to opportunity to grow. And then how deep is the, how deep is the relationship? Have you done the hard work of cultivating genuine relationships to be able to speak into people's lives? How deep is that relationship? And then third, even if those two are true, how well is someone able to receive that feedback? When you step into those conversations, will they immediately get defensive? Blame, insecurity rises to the surface? Then I might suggest returning to step two. How do you earn the trust to continue to speak in significant issues where we're pointing people to life with Jesus? So this week, here's some takeaways just as we head into our week this week. Here's my encouragement. Every day this week, read James 2, 1 to 13, and pray and watch. And then we often talk about Monday to Saturday living. Here would be my encouragement this week. Monday, Just pray and watch. He saved us. Apart from my batting average, my speed, my ability to field, nothing that I did earned my standing before God. And yet he chose me. And then Tuesday, here'd be my encouragement. Spend some time asking, how might I love my neighbor as an everyday missionary? What might it look like to see that vertical relationship get expressed? And then take a guess what I might encourage you to do on Wednesday. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. And the particular thing I'd ask you to do, just sit in that reality again of God's presence, of what he's done in your life. Do you feel the miracle of what he's done in your life? Anyone want to take a guess what Thursday might look like? How might I love my neighbor as an everyday missionary planted strategically in those relationships? God, how might I be a neighbor? Anyone want to take a guess what Friday might look like? Yeah, he saved us. Do we feel the weight of what that looks like? Does that idea ever get old? Does, it, does, that, does the weight of what it means that, that my depravity, does that get old to you? Are there people that you get to hang with and wrestle? Oh, he saved us. And then Saturday, want to take a guess? Yeah. How might I be a neighbor? How might I love my neighbor as an everyday missionary? And then next Sunday, here's what I'm looking forward to gathering back and doing, is that we actually get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And thank God for his mercy to us and his call to invite others to the table. That we get to embrace that reality through taking the bread and the cup together. Pray with me. Oh God, you are way too kind, way too generous to us. Help us to experience your grace and kindness more and may we embody that in real, tangible, practical ways to those we are in relationship with. Uh, as a, as, a, as a reflection of our faith and hope and trust in you.
reveal people to our mind that you have uh, and are inviting us into uh, to demonstrate this royal law, this kingdom lens to love our neighbor as ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, for your glory, we pray. Amen.